Welcome to the very first episode of Doing Your Business with Matt Hartman, a podcast where I talk with founders of profitable businesses. This week, we'll be talking with Eric Chang, co-founder of Hellman Chang, a furniture maker whose very first corporate customer was the Four Seasons. Now, I've known Eric since elementary school, and despite the fact that I forgot to invite him to my bar mitzvah in seventh grade, we've remained friends and he's agreed to be the very first interview. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that I will be doing a debrief of the interviews with Eric, and I would love to get your comments and analysis through voicemail, and I'll include them in the podcast. If you call me, it will go directly to voicemail. My number is 646-779-1234. Okay, let's get to the interview. Thanks so much for for joining us, Eric. Um, For those of you who can't see him, which is everyone listening on this podcast, Eric, can you just tell us a little bit about... Uh, before we even talk about your business, mm-hmm. tell us a little bit what you're wearing. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, it's it's really just a, a blazer, white shirt, and jeans. I mean... <laughs> when you walked in here, you were by far the best dressed person in this office immediately. Yep. But that's is that always the case when you walk into a room? Uh, I have a reputation uh, for uh, my wardrobe. Let's, let, we'll say that. Um, I mean, it's a it's well tailored, I suppose. Um, I've. I thought you were a bit dressed down because you didn't have a pocket square. This is true. <laughs> this is true. No, I've got a. I've got a quite quite a, a wardrobe, I guess. Um, and to be quite frank, I mean, that was part of of the brand early on. You know, I never went to design school. I had zero credibility, but I always loved fashion and design and a finely tailored suit. And I found that uh, when I started going to these meetings with these inter-designers who obviously they know their shit when it comes to fashion and design, but I come in with, uh, you know, these impeccably tailored suits, they would instantly snap to attention. And whatever I said, I mean, they believed it. It was fully credible. Even though early on, like in any business, you know, you you fake it till you make it. I was 24, 25, self-taught in design, and I could walk into a meeting and I I could command their attention. Did you always speak with this much confidence? That is part of it too. Uh, you sales is sales, and and I think you you really have to believe in what you sell, and you have to be confident in how you say it. And uh, yeah, if you want to say it's the voice, the the way I speak, and the way I appear in in a meeting and talk about design, it it all goes into selling the larger package, which is our brand and our furniture. And that was the case in the beginning. That was the case in the beginning. It, it's still the case today. Um, I, I am more the face of the company. Uh, you know, we have a national advertising campaign out there right now where uh, I had this vision a few years ago where it would it would capture the whole brand in one image. And if you ever see it, it's in El Decor. It's in Interiors Magazine. Um, it's a photo of Dan and myself, my business partner, and we're in our Brooklyn studio and we're building furniture covered in sawdust. And there's there's actually no furniture shown in the ad. Um, but the, the shtick is that we're, we're wearing these finely tailored suits, which were actually provided uh, graciously by Canali, the, the Italian suit brand. Uh, they came and measured us out and gave us these bespoke suits for the campaign shoot. Um, but it captures everything in, in one photo, which is... Dan and myself, how we used to build furniture the old-fashioned way, you know, the two of us with our bare hands. It's in our studio in Brooklyn, New York, and you get this dichotomy, like the, the rawness of the origin of the furniture 
but you get a sense of the lux and the refinement and um, the the kind of the high end factor with these beautifully tailored suits. So without even showing the furniture, you just you understand what we're making, what we're doing in the shop. Um, so I thought it was really great because you know being a small company, uh, advertising is obviously very very expensive, and I wasn't interested in just showing a piece of furniture and, and having the sales of that one piece go up. I wasn't. I was focused on building a brand for the long term that could sustain itself for decades. That my my best friend and I, Dan Hellman, who I've been best friends since we were uh, ten years old, we we found out very early on that we had a, a passion for art and design. And in the summers in high school, we taught ourselves how to build solid wood furniture. His dad would pull the cars out of the garage, and we'd go in there, and we'd you know, buy crappy tools from Home Depot and shitty pine, and, and we had these old woodworking books that we read and, and figured out how to build this stuff. And it was the old-fashioned way. I mean, you know, planers and, and bandsaws and hand chisels, and that's how we learned to build furniture. And we fell in love with it. I ended up going to NYU uh, Stern Business School for undergrad. I studied finance and marketing. And Dan went to Northwestern. He studied classical guitar performance. And after we graduated, he came out to New York, and we missed the hobby and went on Craigslist, and we found an old co-op wood shop out in Bushwick. Now, this was before Brooklyn was considered cool. This is probably 2005, 2006. And we started going every night after work. We'd meet up at around 6.30. We worked till 1, 2 in the morning, get covered in sawdust, and do it all over again the next day. Every Saturday, Sunday, meet up at 7 in the morning and just work until, you know, 10 at night. And really just fell back in love with the process of woodworking. Very quickly, you realize this is a very expensive hobby to have in New York City. So you're right. Like any other kind of small startup, you start selling to friends and family wherever you can uh, get paid for your services. So who's your first customer? <laughs> Our first customer was, um, oh, this is probably before we actually had a company. This is just to, to fund the hobby of woodworking. Our first customer was the father of one of our, our good friends, Mike Frisch. And we designed what we called a little wine dresser. He had these two little kids. He remarried, had two little kids running around the house, and he needed to store his liquor somewhere. And he was gracious enough to fund our first piece, which was this wine dresser. Uh, turned out lovely. And uh, from that, we decided that we really needed to develop a brand. We needed to develop something, kind of a cohesive company, if we were going to sell this this product and, and the any product or high end specifically. Well, what we realized was, you know, we, we fell in love with the process of classic woodworking. So, you're, like I said, you're, you're doing uh, hand cut mortise and tendon joinery. You're planing solid wood. There's very little veneer. Um, you're doing the dovetail joints. Um, this, by virtue of that alone, but because we. We're passionate about how we built the furniture. We wanted to create the best possible product. By that virtue alone, you're talking about something that is extremely labor-intensive. You're talking about utilizing the best materials in the world. And so it needed to demand a high price point. It wasn't that we wanted to go and tackle the super luxury market. It's because we had a passion for something. We loved what we were doing and how we were doing it, and we weren't willing to compromise that. And it was expensive to do. So it was you, expensive from, to do, from yeah. a cost perspective, is kind of where you yeah, were starting, absolutely. saying, "If we're, we, this is the, what, what we love, and 
this particular kind of furniture, sourcing wood from the right places, putting all of this effort into it, yeah. the number of hours it takes, I mean, is that a big piece of it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're talking about spending 20 to 40 hours on a coffee table or 60 hours on a dining table. We're, we're the perfect business partners because we're actually polar opposites. Um, I do the creative design. I do the marketing, the PR, the branding, business development, and sales development. And Dan is the technical designer, and he does the product management, uh, production management. He's in the shop with the guys on a daily basis. So I often joke that uh, without each other, I would just have a stack of drawings on paper, and Dan would have a stack of cutting boards. But together, <laughs> we can make really beautiful product. Um, but that in itself is why we work together so well. Uh, we do very different things. We have a wholehearted trust in one another. So he can do what he does. I don't have to question it. I can do what I do. He doesn't question it. I, we can go weeks without talking to each other, but we had the same vision, the same goal. And so we keep that shit moving forward. Uh, so it works out really, really well. You'll never, we'll never have an argument, you know? In that about divide, dividing responsibilities. Well, not about dividing responsibilities, but we're never stepping on each other's toes. Right. It's never too many cooks in the kitchen. Can you talk a little bit about how you guys go back and forth yeah. and what to like make things that seem like they shouldn't work work? You know, it's kind of like the uh, the sale the that constant struggle between like the engineers and the salespeople, the front end and the back end. Mm-hmm. You know, You're, the two are constantly working together, but they're they're looking for the same thing, which is to create the best possible product and sell the best possible product. So uh, what's great, and I think it's actually a really good thing, what we do actually butt heads is when we create new product together. Because I'm pulling him in one direction, he's pulling me in the other direction. He wants to make sure that this is producible, that we can make the margins we need to make. And I'm trying to create the most stunning, stellar piece and just try to sell the crap out of it. Uh, so it's, it's actually a really, really good push and pull. I'll sketch something out and tell me I'm out of my mind. He'll try to tear it apart. And I try to push him in terms of uh, pushing the technical elements of it to see if we can actually achieve that vision. And how long does that process take, that back and forth when you're building work on a new piece? Oh, man. It can take, it can take months sometimes. Um, it, because each product is a labor of love. And Dan and I will actually, we have a staff now, but we will actually go and we'll make those prototypes ourselves. So there's an opportunity for us to kind of go back in there and get our hands dirty again. And the process is a lot like sculpting. Once it's done on paper, it's not really done. Because then we'll go back in there, we'll start making it, we'll, we'll build it in three dimensions, and we'll start to see all these different elements come to life, and we can make changes on the fly. It's one of the, the really wonderful things about being vertically integrated um, in this particular business. But yeah, it can, it can take months, but the play on the strengths and weaknesses that Dan and I have uh, allow us to create the best possible product at the end of the day. Um, but to go back to your original question, you were talking about pricing and things mm-hmm. like that, I guess. Um, I forgot the math. We we had determined how many thousands of dollars it is to open our shop every day. And by the way, our, our studio is a total of 16,000 square feet in Bushwick in Brooklyn. We've got about, uh, I think there's about 13, 14 of us right now that run this company, whether it's people in the admin side or people that are building it and finishing it. So when you're looking at high-end products, you really need to focus on your margins because you're not selling a huge volume. Um, so you got to make sure, you know, the kind of classic, you know, 30% cost of goods sold is that's kind of the sweet spot because your acquisition costs are a lot higher than if you were selling a commodity, obviously. And when you think about your acquisition costs, I want to, I guess that's a yeah. separate piece of it, Absolutely. but 
Do you include all marketing and brand marketing in that? How do you think about acquisition costs? Uh, yeah, that, that plays all into it. I mean, we have a, a national advertising campaign in El Decor and Tears Magazine, New York Magazine. I mean, that's a six-figure advertising budget. Um, we have 13 showrooms that represent our line, and each showroom has between 25 and, and 35 pieces on the floor. That is a cost that we have to incur. Do you have people there, or is it a showroom that's the, just the stuff? It, these are third-party showrooms that are very high-end. Um, and they have salespeople that staff it. And we, it's our responsibility to get product onto the floor so that they can display it. And then they can sell it. And it's all made to order. So the salespeople will sell something. Then we get a purchase order saying, you know, they sold this table at this size and this finish, all these options. But, you know, it, it costs between, on average, we determined sixty-five dollars to $85,000 to set up a new showroom, a new territory. And then on top of that, we are refreshing the furniture at least once a year in each market. So we're, you know, we're sending a dozen pieces out in each city, and we're swapping furniture. Mm-hmm. So this is a very, very capital-intensive industry to be in. Um, that all plays into the acquisition cost because that is a cost of marketing. The, the service aspect of this business, you know, we're, we're creating and selling a high-quality product, but at this level of consumer, we're actually providing a service. Everything that these people are consuming is actually a service. You know, these kinds of customers don't expect to, you know, walk into a store and purchase something. Everything to them is an experience and a service. So we do a lot of things to service these clients that cost a lot of money, whether it's creating custom finish sample, um, shipping them, marketing collateral. Uh, we will pick people up from the airport, you know, flying from London Heathrow, bring them out to our studio in Brooklyn, show them the product, and bring them right back to JFK and fly off. So there's a, there's a, a huge expense when it comes to the level of service that we provide. And where do you even go to find these showrooms? So the way this kind of... Um, at this price point, uh, the consumers that can afford it, the thought is that, and this is an, um, the standard for the American industry for high-end furniture, the thought is if you can afford this type of stuff, you will hire an interior designer to design your home. Got it. Because you don't have the time to design your own home. You're going to throw a lot of money at it and create the most beautiful home in the world. So you hire an interior designer, and interior designers have access to a very exclusive set of products and showrooms um, that it's called to the trade. These are trade showrooms. And this is where all the finest furniture in the world is sold in America. So in each particular market, New York, Chicago, L.A., there are design centers that only interdesigners can go to. And within those are, you know, a huge range of specific showrooms that can go from the low end to the very, very high end. And that's where you would find... Our product. In a way, I mean, do you think about this as a B two B sale, even though it ends uh, sort of B two B to C? Yes, essentially that is that's what's happening. It's a B two B. Our real clientele are the best interior designers in the world. I mean, the Jamie Drakes, the Michael Smiths. Um, they're the actual clientele, and these interior designers will have, you know, twenty to hundred clients in a year that they're shopping for for different projects. And so you want to create a really strong relationships with these particular designers. In that sense, it is B2B. But at the end of the day, it's still a consumer product. And any kind of high-end consumer product demands, especially if you're going to do something as asinine as spend $5,000 on a side table, you're talking about an emotional sell. 
And so when I started the company um, and I entered in this industry and I began to learn about it, I saw that it was uh, it was a sad but kind of a blessing that this industry was kind of wide open. No one had really understood or really elevated the concept of brand in this industry because it was so B2B. And when I created the company, I saw that as an opportunity. And I came in and from day one intended to create a brand that consumers could uh would really desire. And I think that was a huge boost to the company. And it was a reason why we grew so quickly. This is a very slow moving industry. And I was like you earlier. I, you know, in, in college, I started up a online advertising agency. I remember. Yeah. I was one of the first people amongst us doing techie stuff and talk about customer acquisition, all that kind of, I mean, that's all I was doing all day long. And the, the agency that, that uh, I helped start up, there was four of us when we started, and uh, our senior year, we were ranked the 56th fastest growing company in the U.S. by Entrepreneur Magazine. And it was a great learning experience, uh, but I think I got a little burnt out in, in, in all this kind of uh, techie advertising, and I wanted to create something tangible. You know, there was a lot of money. I mean, we, when I left four and a half years into it, it was a $32 million company. I mean, we were killing it. But there was a part of me in generating all this revenue that wasn't actually creating any tangible product that I felt a little, I felt a disconnect. You know, there, I, I couldn't get behind it in the, in the way of like passion and, Love and I had this other passion of designing and building furniture, and the transition was uh, night and day. I mean, talk about a different move. I mean, when I left, we were—I was in my Soho loft office, thirty employees. I don't know, thirty-two million dollar company at the time. It was like a Tuesday, and then Wednesday, I was in a wood shop in Brooklyn with Dan, and we were sanding tables. That's just the two of you. Just the two of us. It was it was that stark of a contrast between a Tuesday and a Wednesday. Working in the online world, which don't get me wrong, is amazing. The scalability, mm-hmm. the potential money in it, the pace—it's unreal. Uh, and then moving from that into something that is the most labor-intensive, the most capital-intensive—I mean, building old-fashioned. The old-fashioned way, solid wood furniture. You need a lot of real estate. I mean, all the things that an investor would not point put their money into. I mean, that that was the kind of direction that I took. Uh, there was something quite liberating about that. I liked it. I loved it. Uh, you know, it's kind of like when you you date someone and you're you're miserable and you break up and you find that the next girlfriend you're with is the <laughs> polar opposite. Uh, equated to something like that. How do you finance this, or how did you finance this? How you want to do it in the future? And and you said you didn't pay yourself for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. I, uh, when we were just talking, asked, was that because at the end you were? It turns out you didn't. You you miscalculated, or did it turn out that you had actually made money, but you thought it made more sense to to put it back into the business? How were you thinking about that? It's probably a little bit of both, but I, I think I knew going into it. You know, having not really sold any furniture just yet, that uh, I wasn't going to be able to pay myself at all. And that we had to build inventory, we had to build prototypes, we had to pay for marketing costs. It, there was not going to be any way until we started getting real sales that I could actually pay myself. 
And so, you know, I was really fortunate that um, when I left, the, the agency had, had done so well. And, you know, I had saved up a little bit of a war chest for myself. It wasn't without, you know, risk. I, I had bought my first apartment in Williamsburg, and I was paying a mortgage. And uh, there's no doubt that it was scary. And I think any person that does any startup, they're very aware of it. You know, you're going you're gonna to bootstrap this business in the beginning. How many pieces? Are you comfortable sharing how many pieces you sell in year one, year two? I, I want to say we probably sold about 100 pieces in year one. Um, and we've been growing at a pace of about 30% or more a year. Right now, we're probably on track to produce between 700 and 800 pieces of furniture this year, um, if that gives you any sense of, of, of the growth level. And uh, in actuality, the, the timing could not have been better. What we found was when the economy crashed in 2008, um, God, one of the first things to, to go under was the housing industry and, and therefore anything that related to furniture. But instead of our clients being worth $80 million, they're now worth $40 million. And it's not like they cannot afford this beautiful dining table for their home. So what was happening was as a result of the recession, the, the values of American consumerism completely shifted. It went more towards personal values and you were seeing people transition towards American-made, handmade. They wanted to know that there was a story behind the product. They wanted to know who was making it. They wanted to know that they weren't spending money for the sake of spending money. They wanted to buy a product that would become a worthy investment. So, in fact, they were actually willing to spend more for their furniture, so long as they knew that they were getting the best possible quality and that they were supporting something that they that aligned with their values. So that's sort of this idea of fewer, better things. Correct. Better made, beautiful made. And that was the stuff that our brand, Hellman Chang, was basically screaming from the rooftops. There was this perfect timing for us, and consumers were just gravitating towards our brand. You know, they love that it was made in Brooklyn, New York. They love that it was done by hand. They love that it was these two kind of homegrown boys that were building the stuff in their garage that had made a leap of faith and started doing this in New York and creating really finely crafted handmade stuff. And our line just kind of exploded. The business grew very rapidly during the recession. And at the exact same time, our competitors who weren't aligned in that same value system, I mean, they started closing their doors. And so our market share began to grow very quickly. That's interesting. So we were very well insulated from the recession. In fact, we were perfectly positioned to take advantage of what was coming out of the recession. Um, so that's just an aside. That's uh, about how we developed the brand early on. And, and I will say this. It was authentic. It was done with passion, and that's the most important thing. If you do anything in life, if you're building any kind of brand, if it's not authentic and it's not from a place of passion, people will see right through it. And so it wasn't that we created this brand because we saw this opportunity, we were going for it, we were taking advantage of the market. It Just like how we wanted to build furniture by hand the old-fashioned way, and so it had to be exposed. It was all about being passionate about what we did and doing what we loved to do. And it was just literally, it was serendipity. Everything lined up, the stars aligned, and there we were. So that concludes part one of my interview with Eric. In part two, he's going to talk about how he got his first customers how he wasn't able to get a bank loan and
and what the different tools are that he uses and how he thinks about sustainability. So if you're interested in diving in deeper, that episode will be released in a couple of days. In the meantime, if you have any comments on what you've heard so far, please leave me a voicemail. My number is 646-779-1234. Finally, if you've made it this far, please share the episode, share the podcast. My website is dybpodcast.com. On Twitter, I have dybpodcast. And also my personal Twitter is at Matt Hartman. And again, you can always text or call me at 646-779-1234. Talk soon.